Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. The easy access to instant opinions makes what Fabiola Santiago does all the more valuable. Fabiola is the featured columnist at the Miami Herald. In a world of knee-jerk reactions, she provides the exception, the calm, considered opinion. Fabiola provides a critical voice for Miami. She puts herself out there, writing about controversial topics like abortion and politics and immigration. But she also writes about the personal, the death of her father, a Cuban exile who never returned home, her mother's struggle with Alzheimer's. Fabiola understands Miami in a deep way. She came here as a child and saw a southern city remade by immigrants. She was among the first journalists to report on the Marielle boat lift. She's not just an opinion machine. She's a former arts and culture writer and a novelist. And she was a mom and a journalist at a time when she had few role models. She's lived the kind of life you need to learn to cut through the noise. So let's talk to her. Welcome, Fabi. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I am so happy to be able to catch up with you and uh, to be paid for it by being on the radio, which is great. Um, because, um, you know, those, those last few years uh, when I was at the Herald and you were the columnist there, I mean, you, you were covering so much territory, moving through so many things, and, and you had so many things going on with your life. I know that, you know, you lost both your parents in the last few years, and, and, um, and I know you try to get up and see your, your, your daughters now and your grandchildren, <laughs> so, like, your life became this really interesting mix of where you're writing about Miami and, and you're really seeing it from a lot of different perspectives. Yes, my, my uh, career at the Miami Herald has actually been my marriage, you know, my long-lasting relationship. It's lasted longer, <laughs> it lasted longer than your marriage. Yes, it outlasted your <laughs> yes, it lasted <laughs> my marriage, my other one, my, <laughs> my dating life, <laughs> it's like outlasted everything. Yeah, um, it has a yeah. way of doing that, of becoming the, uh, the, the loudest voice in the room <laughs> all of a sudden. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I remember a time where um, I knew you from the world as a as an arts and culture writer, and just when you were considering being the columnist, I want to say it was like 2011 or so. Yes, and you had this big like I remember talking with you about it, and you're saying like, I don't, "Is this the move? Is this the thing that I want to do?" So in the last 12 years, have you have you figured it out? Do you feel comfortable? <laughs> <on that? laughs> no. No. Uh, well, let me tell you, I'm glad that you started with my parents because truly I was committed to seeing them through their health issues because when I had my first daughter, I married my college sweetheart and we did what young people do once they're married, <laughs> not take care of themselves. So um, during my last year at the journalism school, I got pregnant and you know, I had a daughter, took four days off, uh, including a weekend while your to daughter, have my baby. Your daughter was born while you were in J school. Yes, my oldest daughter was born. She went to the University of Florida College of Journalism. Wow. And yes, it was an incredible experience. Every single teacher thought I had gotten, you know, knocked up. <laughs> Can I say you that did. on radio? You did, but you were actually married. So. Actually, exactly. Right. Exactly. And there was must have been something in that in the in the osmosis of it because you're was that the daughter that became the journalist for yes. stretch? Yes. Yeah. Ta Tanya, yes, right? Tanya. Yeah. Tanya. Tanya became a journalist. Um, well she actually started working at the Miami Herald when she was in high school, like sixteen years old and, and she was a clerk at the Miami Lakes office when oh, we had a neighbor's office in Miami Lakes. And um, 
and then moved to Hialeah and then um, you know we the Palm Beach Post recruited her from she was writing about Hialeah Gardens and the corruption and some editor up there was reading it and she and I were almost (laughs) colleagues like we just we just missed each other during a time yes so you were saying like column like column writing the decision to go into it was a family-based one right yeah your dad had been sick at the time yes yes what happened was I really have never I never it was not an ambition for me to be a columnist I know that a lot of writers feel that that is like some sort of a prestigious pinnacle, pinnacle of you know but I love narrative. I was extremely happy as a narrative writer. Um, and I turned the job down actually like I think three times. Wow, it was like At Saint least Peter, two right? Formally. <laughs> <laughs> before before this cock crows, you will be the columnist of the Miami Herald. <laughs> yes, yes. And but you know, I, I I then realized that I needed to challenge myself to do this. And I had already been feeling it because I was interviewing people about subjects that I knew more about it than they did. Oh, that's interesting. You started because you had such context for these things. Exactly. I covered every single exodus since the Mariel boat lift. I, you know, had done so much work in this town. For example, you know, when I became an arts writer, it was because that was what was happening in Miami. That was a big story in Miami. Miami was becoming an arts capital, right? right. So I, I kind of always have been in the cusp of of some trend, of some, um, you know, something that is important to Miami and to our community. And so what happened was that all of that experience that was so varied between news and features mm-hmm. just gave me such broad knowledge um, that I had to, you know, I was feeling like I had to almost feed information to the people I was interviewing. Right. And you should probably, like what, do you, like, remember, <laughs> do you remember specifics without naming names that, like, or, or name names, whatever? <laughs> Well, no, like in the subject of Cuba, you know, Mm. I would interview uh, someone from the State Department and (laughs) I would be like handing over information to, you know, a younger person about whatever, whether it was the freedom fight, yeah, the history or reminding them or, um, and so, and so it coincided with my dad then becoming, uh, you know, gravely ill from uh, congestive heart failure and it required a lot of trips to the hospital and a lot of, you know, me having the flexibility to deal with him and with then also my aging mother at the same time. It just, so yeah, I wrote some columns from hospital rooms, um, hospital waiting rooms. Um, And you were in that generation where you were like still taking, raising your kids, like really that's that sandwich generation we talked so much about, but raising kids who are still not, you know, grown, Mm -hmm. fully formed adults Mm -hmm. and parents who, who, who need who needed help. You who know, needed who, help. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But um, and instead, you weren't running to news event to news <laughs> event. You were kind of, it allowed you to kind of be considered from a distance, both figuratively and, and physically, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and, and so when, so when I said yes, um, I said yes. I remember that I was asked to sort of write something um, about what kind of columnist I become. Mm-hmm. 
I have violated everything I said in that memo. <laughs> I will never do. You made a manifesto and then and quickly. I am, I'm not going to get into Miami politics. <laughs> Week one gets into Miami politics. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to. Oh, my gosh. But that what's um, interesting to me is that you go when even when you write, even with a kind of an opinion mind about arts or something like that, you know, where you mm-hmm. where you're doing kind of a criticism, mm-hmm. it's so different than when you are the featured columnist, the metro columnist, we call it. Although yes. people outside don't know what that is, but mm-hmm. the metro columnist is a paper mm-hmm. where all of a sudden your face is on the thing, yeah. and it's there twice a week, yes. right? And yes. people now associate you with like the voice mm-hmm. of this place, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you become a target in a way that you hadn't been before. Absolutely, and I became a target from day one. People made all kinds of assumptions about who I was. Um, You know, the history of Cuban-Americans in this town is such that uh, people, some people have knee-jerk reactions against Cuban-Americans. Some people have sort of these prejudicial views about who we are without taking into account the breadth of our experiences, which are, you know, make our situations very different. Um, so people start having opinions about what you're going to write and what your stances are before you've written a word. And people try to influence me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it all became very overwhelming because from the beginning, my columns all of a sudden were like super reads, right? Like, um, what do you mean by that? Okay. Uh, what I mean is that. For example, I wrote a column uh, early on about the um, Sif Opera House, um, you know, Mr. Sif wanting to change the name from Dolores Sif, who was his longtime wife and the wife who made that donation to the Opera House, you know. She steered the donation she to steered, the Opera House. You know, mm-hmm. she was the philanthropist in the family. He's the businessman. Mm-hmm. And... Um, because he already had a new woman, and he wanted to put her name on there. I remember this conversation. Yes, <laughs> yes, and I had, as a visual arts writer, I had had lunch with Mr. and Mrs. Sif when um, when they made a donation to MoCA. We were all the writers invited to this luncheon to get to know them. And so, um, so really, I just went to it. Um, started making the calls, doing the reporting, and then I wrote a column that had a little more gumption than I had intended. Oh, okay. Beca- you, you let it fly a little bit more than you wanted to. Well, yes. I, I quickly learned that it is in the process of writing that I come up with an opinion. See, other people, they have they shoot from the hip, they have an opinion, right? I don't. I... I have a feeling, right? I have something that triggers my interest in the topic, and then I follow through Mm. with reporting, and I follow through with uh, the writing, and then I try to be as honest, keep myself honest as I'm writing, and something takes over that I don't know what it really is, but um, this feels like a novelist sensibility where you don't know the characters until you start writing it out. It's it's almost like you have to hear yourself say it out loud. Yes. Writing is writing is thinking. Yes. And you have to do that first. Yes. And when I'm writing, I'm also considering. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I always have in mind the people I'm writing about and mostly my and my readers as well. Right. Uh, what do I owe them? What do I owe the people that I'm writing about? Um, you know, and how can this contribute to something, 
right? And, and this is kind of what went into writing that column about the the Ziff Opera House. Yes, yeah. and because um, he wanted so, to, he wanted to rename it after his after his at, at the time his his partner at that time after his wife who would have been named after had passed away. Yes, wanted to take Dolores off. Look at you! I can name. see the I can see the the outrage in your face right now. I would not have it. So uh, and and the people at the Opera House didn't want to do it either. You know, no one really wanted to do it except Mr. Sif. And you said the quiet part part out loud, as the kids say. So you you wrote about it. And what was the reaction to that? Well, the reaction to that was that, whoa, my inbox, my emails went from, you know, the dozens and dozens to, I, I think I stopped counting at like, 250 something like that yeah, e- <laughs> something incredible email becomes almost something that i imagine you you don't even look at anymore because of the the volume of it after something like that i actually do oh you do yes because my oh, now you're going to get another 500 emails <laughs> because my my regulars are just beloved to me i love them you know um well for, but for them to become regulars yeah. they had to become First time caller, so to speak, first time writer. <laughs> what was that experience like to see, you know, you something that you mm-hmm. might have written about as an arts writer? Uh-huh. You know, you could have written in that in a context of a third person reported story, but then as a reported column, seeing that reaction, what did that tell you about what you could do with this job? Well, yeah, it made me, well, actually, you know, it scared me how much, you know, power I seem to have all of a sudden. I've been writing my entire career. Mm. And even though I did do a lot of things, my, my stories did a lot of things that I was very proud of. It made a big difference. I'm especially proud, and I want to say this since I criticize us so much now. That you say us. Us, and I mean Cuban Americans. Mm. Okay. And I do so because we're the majority group. Minor- we're the majority minority. Mm. And because we are in power, we have the political and economic power. And I believe that we have the responsibility to be better than those before us. Mm. Um, and so, so yes, you, you it definitely upsets see it, me. You definitely right. see it as a way to keep keep the community honest. Yes. Even especially if it means yes. pointing a figure back at, at the community that helped raise you. Right, right. And that I, that I introduced to Miami readers with my stories in the 1980s Mm. um you know i i was always i was a news writer but i was also um a feature writer by nature i don't know by osmosis whatever i i would see something and pitch it to living today all the time living today was the name of the feature section so i wrote things like um you know something on the flamenco shows when, when flamenco was like big in miami um, I did all kinds of things that were not news that 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 really introduced the Cuban community as something else than what was covered in the news. Because what was covered in the news is always like, you know, the corrupt, this corrupt person, um, you know, this boatload, this plane load, this, you know, and and so that really was something I wanted to do: give the community another dimension, right? Our guest today is journalist Fabiola Santiago. She's a columnist at the Miami Herald and has been at the paper for 40 years. You talk about really what it is. 43. I, 43. (laughs) I shortchanged you. (laughs) 
Uh, and and it's like those like every one of those years is like dog years. <laughs> those three years are like dog years. I, I feel like you. From the very beginning, you were put in a position to tell the story, not just of Miami, but the particular part of Miami, which is the Cuban community that that you were part of. Um, and you started writing about Mariel. So, but I'm, but specifically, you, I mean, you had such a connection to this because you came to Cuba uh, as a as a ten year old, right? Yes. What is the when did you come here? Was it a freedom flight? Yes. Um, I arrived on October 7th, 1969. You know, Cubans never forget the date when they crossed they the Florida Straits. Right. And what do, what do you remember about that? Oh my gosh, my flight was unforgettable. And talk about news um, always following me. The flight before um, the flight before ours, uh, a group of young young men tried to get on the landing gear, to stow away in the landing gear. Oh my God. So as traumatic as leaving Cuba is, mine was even more because I saw those kids, you know, doing that. I was, I was, we were on the second flight. So I was standing in this fence. I remember see-through fence outside? behind it, behind it. We, we were, yeah, outside, outside of the Varadero airport um, on the, whatever the, I tarmac can't even call it a tarmac because it was so rudu, you rudimentary. Know, rudimentary. Yeah. But I remember then the Cuban police catching one and putting him in the cruiser. And that cruiser passed right by my face. And I remember that young man's face today wow. as I saw it then. He had curly hair, blondish, and these green eyes. And so, flash forward to my Miami Herald career. Yeah. I'm sitting in features. I was working in features. Mm -hmm. And we were doing something on the Freedom Flights. And I decide to just go back into the microfilm and try to find if there was any coverage of the day I came. And sure enough, there it was on the Miami Herald's front page. The story of our arrival of your particular flight yes the that fr- is amazing. and the flight before both the, the the journalists after what happened in the first flight then the journalists were waiting for us in the tarmac to and ask you to guys ask reactions about what you had to seen ask what, us what had happened and so then behind me sat joe Werney, who longtime miamians will remember was the herald home and design writer and Joe goes, I covered that. Come on. Yes. Fred Tasker and I covered that. Fred Tasker, the, the late Fred Tasker. Was he the goes, wine we were sitting in those barracks at the airport waiting for you guys. And it took forever for your flight to arrive. And we got so hungry. We ate like literally the media ate your welcome home sandwiches. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ham sandwiches. <laughs> wow. Already taking food out of your mouth. That's, that, oh, I mean, that's that's a very journalist thing to do. If there's if there's food available, it's it's going to get eaten. It's going to get eaten. Yeah. So, so so the people who covered your arrival mm-hmm. are literally sitting in the room with you as a young reporter. As as a report no, as a, yeah, as a mature one. I was already a woman with three daughters and right. you know, and working in features and I again, again, as a woman um who had children and who decided on a family and a career, mm-hmm. 
which was very rare. There was a moment before Ana Vesiana came uh, to the Herald. I was the only woman with children there. Right. Ana Vesiana Suarez, who's a, yes. who's a, she was a guest here. You, hey, folks, yes. if you want to hear about Ana, you can follow that on your on your podcast, on our, on our daily podcast. Yes. So you didn't have yes. a lot of role models then, really. So, no, none. Yeah. And to be honest, the so then I going back to what I said in the beginning about I felt I owed my parents something. I owed my parents something because... The moment I had my baby, my mother said, I quit my job to take care of your child. And that was it. My mom sacrificed her own ambitions for taking care of my children and my brother's children. And so... What did she want to do? What were her ambitions? Well, she was a teacher in Cuba. Hmm. And I mean, a teacher who really struggled with, you know, being from a poor family to be able to afford school. Hmm. But... She ended up having a successful older brother who helped her, you know, who paid for it. But, um, but, and she was a very beloved teacher. Um, when we were already in exile, we were at the um, Cytus store. Do you remember Zares? Zares, yeah. You know, Cite. we called it Cytus. Yep. Um, and we were, and we were, I, I never forget, we were um, buying the my dress, first school day dress, you know. And all of a sudden I heard, maestra, maestra, you know, teacher, teacher. And it was a man who had been taught by her. And right there in front of me, he said, your mother is extraordinary. If it hadn't been for her, I would have been a delinquent. But she believed in me and she made me see that I could be a good student. And she taught me to read and she taught me to write and she taught, you know, so... I mean, I, teachers like that can be so formative. I, I remember when I was working at the Herald, mm-hmm. I got an email out of the blue one day, and it was from my kindergarten teacher when I was a little boy. And I mm-hmm. was like this, and it was about something unrelated. And I said, you may not know this, but your name is familiar enough. I had a teacher by your last name, Malkoff, when I was a, when I was a, a, a six-year-old kid. And we, we maintained like a pen pal friendship since then. So like a good teacher can really make such an influence in your life. It sounds like yes. your mom did that for many she, people. Yes, she definitely did that for people. Um, but unfortunately, when we came in to exile, people told her that teachers here were not respected, that they had no rights in the classroom, even back then, 1969. Mm. And, you know, she had she had resigned when she was, um, at, you know, basically forced by the Cuban government to, would have been forced to teach um, you're not communism, but they in, they started indoctrinating kids in school by doing things like, um, you know, the vocabulary was not on, not anymore. You know, A is for apple, B is for you know it was, you know, M is for los militares. You know, whatever R is for rifle. They just really militarized and got that verbiage of war and you know we've got an enemy to defeat and i i mean you're hearing these stories you're hearing these stories first first person from your mom and you live them and i live them this is this is and this is the one that i remember the most because i was terrified when we were given the assignment of writing um we had to write these essays on the revolution's leaders and and so it was very, it was implied that they were amazing people, that da, da da you know. And so I knew better from conversations at home. And what I did was to, was stick to the facts, write biography, right? And I, I do think that's how my love of facts began because 
I kept, I had sort of the first, I was like the top student in the class. And so my, you know, my essay was praised or whatever. I didn't lose any points <clears throat> is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> so good schooling for a journalist, right? Yeah. And so when you have yeah. your mom who was an educator, um, yeah. you're here, you know, you come as a young kid. When, when did it, when did writing become like this avenue that you knew that you were going to follow? You were writing like even like I, I I think one of our producers did they did they unearth a column they used to write or did you have a photo that you shared with them of you at the Hialeah High Hialeah Junior High Hialeah yes I was one of the founders of the Hialeah Junior High highlights in 1970 I don't know three uh, something like that oh or you four. founded the paper yes that me is well well it wasn't my idea it was the English teacher's idea and so. Um, and so they recruited me because Mrs. Rothenberg, who was my English teacher and made such an impact in my life. Oh, shout out when, to the Mrs. Rothenberg, yeah. English teachers. <laughs> yeah, she she's amazing. She um, wrote on one of she had given a free writing assignment, right? Which I love free writing. To this day, I don't want anybody assigning me, assigning me stuff. <laughs> Free writing. And then I wrote an essay titled, The Many Loves of Fabiola Santiago. <laughs> oh, my God. And really, it was a piece about family, Cuba, and the little boyfriend I left behind in Cuba. <laughs> Oh, so like perfect so, for, for this. You wrote like a Dear Abby column then, so, right? That's and I also that. wrote the Dear the Dear Fabby column later. But she wrote on top of this paper, someday I'm going to walk into a bookstore and buy your book. Wow. And so I think that was the one moment where I said, oh, you know, I, I, I could be a writer. I wanted to be a flight attendant. But you know, my dad knocked that down. <laughs> what did your dad do? What was his What was his uh, vision for you? Uh, my dad was in Cuba. He um, was a self made man. His he was um, his father died when he was five, mm. so by twelve he had quit school and started a business a, f a food distribution business on his bicycle fetching groceries for the neighbors. Then he graduated to a motorcycle. You know the ones that had that seat in the side yeah the original instacart <laughs> yeah <laughs> he was also a fan of cars so he would then buy american cars drive them around town sell them for more money um and then when fidel castro came to power he had a serious food distribution business where mm -hmm. he had a truck and <clears throat> he had he distributed um flower products to bakery goods, uh, you know, to restaurants, you know, police barracks, any any place that, you know, took food mm -hmm. wholesale. And uh, and he was doing very well. He was doing very well. He had built my grandmother um, a house. He'd rented one that was better uh, for us. Um, and, and the plans were to b build something in Varadero Beach, which was our summer life was right. in Varadero. So I mean, like all these all these dreams that basically get cut short. When, cut short in nineteen sixty. Yes, here. in nineteen sixty five, <clears throat> he was um, he was asked to turn in the keys of his truck, and then they try to give him back and say, um, "You must um, you 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 can work for us here. Here's the keys back, but now you work for the government." And he said, "No, we're leaving Cuba." 
Right. And that's when my mom, you know, they traveled to Havana to get a visa. It was a brother-to-brother visa. And there was a four-year wait. And my father was sent to forced labor in the agriculture fields, yeah. which he did for four years. Yeah, as, as did my dad. He did, did. he did two-plus years of that. How yeah. much do you think that that influenced your decision to want to study journalism? Like you said, you went to the University of Florida. You were a journalist there. Yes. And, well... The, the the fact is that it was it became fun as a young person you know young kids they just we just want to have fun right and some of us still do <laughs> <laughs> and and so the whole newspaper thing became fun and then I went on to Hialeah senior high where there was a newspaper the record mm. and so I you know I was involved in it from the get-go there was no question about it and I'm very proud of the fact, and this is relevant to today's climate, you know, in 1977, we did a survey of the student population and did a double, we call double truck spread, mm-hmm. right? Like two Which inside pages two of ins- a, if you open a newspaper, if, if you can find the newspaper and open it <laughs> wide, it's like that, except the paper was bigger. Uh-huh. So it was physically bigger too. And we published this survey in sexuality. It was during the Anita Bryant controversy over gay rights and we like my job and me and my um the managing editor of the paper who was uh, well no actually the editor of the paper who was brian stack who's a lawyer here in miami um we went to interview bob kunst that was our he was the um bob kunst is the was the gay rights leader Mm. um in miami dade and um, and so and then another other people went to I don't remember I think it was the managing editor then who interviewed Anita Bryant. So even then we published um, something in our school newspaper that was cutting edge, right? right? Um, and that and that had to have been great training for I mean just three years later. There's the Mario boat lift. You were were you an intern or you had just been hired at the Herald? Yeah. Well, here's here's yes. And you get sent out to cover this. This event that changes Miami in so many ways well, again. Here's what happened. No, I was not sent because I was, you know, in their eyes, just a rookie. <laughs> right, wet behind the ears. Questionable uh-huh. <laughs> young woman that they had brought from uh, Gainesville, but um, at the urging of a professor who said she's the one. You know, Jean Chance said she's the one you need to take. Um, not that they acted like they wanted me while they were interviewing me, but <laughs> oh, they negged you so they could <laughs> offer you less money. I know what that's like. Yes, that's <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. But uh, but no, what happened was that yes, I I was given an internship and was told that the opening was for the spring instead of the summer. So I came. I walked into the Miami Herald newsroom on March 31st, 1980. Well, the Mariel boat lift exploded on April 21st. So, and then during that time that went, before the boat lift, I was just being sent around, you know, like there was really nothing happening. But, and I was dying to get in, you know, to be sent. I was dying to get to the streets. I was, but, you know, there seemed to be like, really no interest in sending this young Cuban girl anywhere. So what did you do? How did you get out there? My mom saved the day because she called me and she said, Fabiola, I just heard on Cuban radio that all these kids, like 15, 16-year-old kids have, 
you know, who were in the Peruvian embassy are now in Miami and they people are flocking to this house in Coral Gables, taking them clothes and food and da da da. So I went to I was sitting there in the city desk doing nothing practically. And I went and I asked the editor if I could go check this out. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll feed it into the main the main story. Right. We'll use five sentences. We'll, we'll use three sentences three and sentences. put it in somebody else's story. Just file right. us notes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went out there. Sure enough, when I got there, it was the most amazing Miami scene. All these young, exactly what my mom said, 15-year-olds telling these stories about having to eat a cat because there was like Oof. no food. 10,000 people jam-packed into the Peruvian embassy. And they told me the story that basically they were at a party in Havana. They heard people were storming the Peruvian embassy and they just went. Wow. Right from Embuyo, right? Like, how do you say Embuyo in, in English? It's yeah, such like a on human a word. On like, a whim. Yeah. On a whim. But, you know, Embuyo has a little more than... Uh, like, like pizzazz to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you end up... Did you... So then you... Had, did this end up being its own separate story then? For you, Fabiola, the intern? Well, but but not not naturally. Um, so I come back and I'm asked to file notes. Well, hell. I still had not gone through my whole journalism classes at UF, you know, the whole curriculum, Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to write notes. All I needed to know, all I knew was to write stories, right? Mm -hmm. So I just wrote it a story and I said, they can take whatever they want out of this. And, um, and then that's it. I, I, I went home for the night as I heard the person, you know, we didn't do have computers back then. I typed this up. And then the person that was entering that into a system um, said, this is really great, Mike. This is really great. So I went home kind of happy. Oh, I did a good job. I, I contributed to Mike's story. I contributed story. to something, right? <laughs> um, and then the next day, you know, we got, you know, my parents were always subscribers to the Herald and El Herald back then. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at, you know, my, uh, you know, I went straight to the local news section. Man, they didn't use my stuff. Then I flipped the thing to the front to start reading the paper the normal way. And there in the railing it is by Fabiola Santiago. Front page story. (laughs) Front page story. My very first front page story. And so after that, they cut me loose. Our guest today is Miami Herald columnist Fabiola Santiago. If it's in the news, she has an opinion about it. Getting to that point... um, you know, you've had so many. You've had so many careers. That's what I say. If you're a journalist long enough, you have many lives within that paper. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me ab- about what it's been like to to b- kind of fully embrace this thing where you're writing columns now. You know, because there is an element, like you said, you become a target for um, a target for for conversation. Right? People talk talk about you in, on the street, or they tweet mm-hmm. about it, or what have you. But talk to me about whether there's been times where there were things you weren't ready for. Mm-hmm. Well, I always tell people that um, <clears throat> my columns should be co- conversation starters, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have the last word on anything. Um, you That's know, an interesting way to think about it. I don't. I really don't. I'm offering up something for you to think about. And I don't expect people to agree with me. I never from the beginning even believed that was possible. 
Um, I have since found that there is a very large part of a silent Miami Mm -hmm. that um, appreciates my point of view, and they range. I mean, this is going to come to a shocker to a lot of people in town, but there are Republicans who really admire me and my columns. And, and that's even, not something that you were you were used to or that you even expected. No. Uh, well, in the beginning, everyone loved me. Let's put it that way. Until right? you wrote when, something. Until, until I went into writing about politics. Was, until, there, was there a moment that you wrote something that that where you felt like there was a first big shift, like a, like there was a blowback that uh, you touched a rail or you you or tell me about times like that where you touched a rail where you got a, <clears throat> a feedback. That you're like, oh, wait, this is not one of, quote unquote, our Cubans or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I had a, I had a, um, I would say that I had a comfortable start thanks to President Obama's opening of Cuba because that quickly became then the shift into politics, right? Oh, um, into straight ahead, you know, politics. Because and, there was no way to, to not write about that in a way that brushes politics. Obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean that it. was my topic. It was, you know, and and I think that and the big breakthrough column actually mm-hmm. <clears throat> happened when the newsroom was reporting on the opening and when the cruise ships began their were going to make their debut everyone was just writing as if it was an acceptable fact and Cuban Americans can't go. <clears throat> oh, Historic opening of cruise ships, except for Cuban Americans. No one was challenging that. Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I, I that was one of those things that hits you as I said, aren't we American citizens? Don't the laws of discrimination affect us too? Don't they apply? And that's when I wrote the column <clears throat> and, and, and this brilliant um professor at the University of um, Illinois in Chicago hmm. had actually had written me it coincided with an email that she sent about this and she said I cannot believe that after traveling to Cuba for research my entire life I cannot go on the cruise on a cruise to Cuba because she was Cuban American because she was Cuban American exactly and she became and, and again if you were if you were born in Cuba and left that there was a there was a restriction that Cuba would place on there you was a, there was a maritime law in Cuba mm-hmm. that prohibited this is what they used to argue to me that this was a done deal that couldn't be changed there was a maritime law in Cuba that does not allow Cuban Americans to arrive by sea mm-hmm. in whatever form right? Of course, this was to, you know, avoid another invasion, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, change the law. And then that column just hit a nerve. Hmm. Um, I stopped looking and counting after I saw like 250,000 page views, which by then was also the birth of the internet Mm -hmm. and the the sort of the online newspaper becoming relevant. Right. It ran all over the, the country as well. I had calls from, I mean, just everywhere. And and so then I wrote a follow-up column because I found out that Norwegian cruise lines um, had docked, when they were docked in an um, Arab country, they forbid the Jews on board to do, 
to disembark. Wow. And guess what Norwegian did? Left the port and said, no, all of our passengers disembark or none of our passengers disembark. So I followed up with that column. And so guess what? And then, of course, the community then, one of the lawyers filed a lawsuit. Everybody rallied around that point, and Cuba maritime law was changed. Well, so, I mean, it really became very, very poignant <clears throat> that the things that you that you could affect some change on even on, even on a, on a on an international level like that with with kind of paying attention to an issue that people were ignoring, right? <laughs> yes, but you know, hey, here in Miami, I'm a metro columnist that writes about Cuba. <laughs> Is that how you feel like you're pitching? That writes sometimes? about Puerto Rico. That right. writes about. <laughs> I'm curious because Miami is so Miami is obviously more than just the Cuban American population. Of it's course. So and it's and and your whole arts career was that. Yes. You know? So so I'm well, curious my, about how. Yeah. Well, the arts career was the one place where I could venture out hmm. of you know rem- remember Art Basel was I was the visual arts writer when Art Basel began so. You know, that exposed me to even more international, you know, affairs beyond the immigrant issue. Right. Um, and you start thinking about art as a political thing, too, right? Yes. Because you start you're, the you, geopolitics involved. Yes. And you see the, the politics involved. So so everything had a place. Um, everything had a place to, to where we are today. Today, I am not just a local columnist. I'm also a state columnist. I'm also running in every single McClatchy newspaper. I have a page in, in the Bradenton Herald. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then I'm syndicated with the Tribune, and then I run in places like the Seattle Times, which I get so much mail from Seattle. It's interesting. Why Seattle, of all places? Because um, they're interested in, in the topics that I write about. They're interested in Cuba. They're interested in DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it... I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, something like it's 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 interesting when you're looking up your stories, uh, your columns and on the Internet. And then all of a sudden the Broomswick Georgia paper comes out and I go, "Whoa! they must have had a lot of readership for that to like clock in on Google. Right. (laughs) You know, what's funny to me is that, you know, you I knew you was when you had published your your novel, Reclaiming Paris. And I want to say it was 2008 or 2007. Yes. And and we had Leonard Pitts on the show early on. um, And he mentioned that he was at the point in his column writing where he was ready to write novels. He was trying he was he had done both in his career. And I'm curious, like, where where is that for you? Are you still interested in doing that? Ah, Yes. Um, okay. So, yes, my novel was published in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a visual arts writer and was done, kind of done with that. Um, and I'd, the artist really, really, really inspired my creative side, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I really loved doing that because I always felt this tremendous sense of inspiration. And I vote, look, Here's the thing. Even when I wasn't, um, when I when my kids were young, I started writing children's stories, mm-hmm. and I've had two of them published in um, Highlights for Children, which is mm-hmm. one of the most prestigious, you know, um, magazines for children. And the first one, Citizen Carmen, was anthologized and used as an exercise in textbooks, and so I've always had that feature that 
fiction, you know, gene. It's kind of like uh, something I play with, right? Right. right. It's, it's if you spend it's so like, much time writing so much nonfiction, you kind of need a little escape valve over here yeah. on the side, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like if I could play tennis, maybe I wouldn't be thinking <laughs> about fiction. <laughs> but, but this is sort of, you know, my... It's my hobby to, I, I read widely. I also had a stint uh, covering the Latin American book boom. So I've read all the Latin, the important Latin American writers. Um, you were talking about writing this children's book at a time when you were raising your daughter. And, I'm, and it just strikes me how much of your, how much of your relating to your family and like where you are in your, you know, with, with what your family needs, mm-hmm. you've adjusted your career towards it. You know, you have a child, you're writing a children's book, your father, mm-hmm needed you around full time you adjusted your career in a way where you mm-hmm. can uh where you can adjust mm-hmm. to that yeah and well i took a leave of absence for the novel uh a six month one i remember now speaking of leave of absence, <laughs> i remember your your daughter was um there was a time where she was writing at the palm beach post again we she just predated me but there was a time where she she had to quit journalism um because she she could literally couldn't drive, as I remember. Yes. Right? And you, but you took her every day. I took her on Sundays. On no, Sundays, I couldn't every Sundays. day. Yeah, Sundays with Tanya. I call it. I've got a little a little notebook where I chronicled our entire our journey of. Will you talk um, to me about what happened during that period? Yes. Uh, what happened was that uh, she was driving to the Palm Beach Post and she had a seizure in the car, miraculously survived um, between a lake. And a tree. There oh was God. a little bit of a fence, and her car stopped there. Wow! So it was a very scary thing, but I didn't want it to um, to affect her career. They had started the the rail. The what are they called? The bright line. Uh, no, the tri rail. The tri rail. Mm-hmm. The tri rail. So during the weekdays, she uh, went on in the tri rail, and she took the bus then, or or a cab or something to the newsroom. And then on Sundays, mom drove her. And by then, I had already invested my book money, <laughs> some of it, in a sub convertible. I always say that <laughs> I bought the hot car, didn't marry the wrong guy. <laughs> 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 so I drove her, and we just had a lot of fun. And then I explored Palm Beach. Um, so yeah, that's that's what happened there. In, in the last minute that we have or so, tell me about what's interesting to you now. What are the things that you're paying attention to now that, that really feel like it, it requires your attention? Well, actually, obviously, the 2024 election mm-hmm. is important. And um, I've been broadening a lot my understanding of American voters. Um, all my children have moved from Florida. Mm. And so I am exposed now to other states who are very, which are very different from Florida, and I'm learning a lot. Um, I do a lot of talking to people uh, on airplanes, uh, you know, airport bars when the plane's delayed, um, you know, and truly getting a sense of where we're at as a nation, which is very worrisome to me. Um, But at the same time, I always find in, in the traveling public a bit of a of a respite, um, a, a, a reality check with what we consume as journalists versus what's really out there. Right. Well, I look forward to reading more of your work to see how how you're influenced by the rest of America. Fabi, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you, Carlos.
Our guest today was Miami Herald columnist Fabiola Santiago. She's been at the Herald for more than 40 years. And that's Sundown for Monday, August 28th. Leslie O.I. Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Merch is WLRN's VP of Radio. And Richard Ives is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, comedian and full-time dad Mario Ramil. He's known for his hilarious sketches on Miami culture. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.